Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Haggai chapter 1. The book of Haggai is an interesting book in that it takes place basically inside the storyline of the book of Ezra. Everything that happens and is said in this book is referred to in summary fashion in Ezra chapter 5 verses 1 to 2, which say, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah the son of Edu prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So, in a sense, the book of Haggai feels like an extra chapter, an extra two chapters, I guess, in the book of Ezra. Now, if you aren't familiar with that story, then it will be helpful to provide a little bit of historical background. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah together tell the story of Israel's return from the Babylonian exile in three waves. The first wave, led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua, takes place in 537 BC. That story is told in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. The second wave, led by Ezra himself, takes place in 458 BC. And then the third wave, led by Nehemiah, takes place in 445 BC. Our story here in the book of Haggai fits into the first wave, or at least the tail end of the first wave of return. I mentioned that the first wave of return took place in 537 BC. In 538 BC, King Cyrus of Persia issued an edict permitting the Jewish people to return to their land and to rebuild the temple. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 1. So in 537 BC, the first great wave of returnees set out from Babylonia and arrived in Jerusalem. They got off to a really good start. In the fall of that year, they rebuilt the altar, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, and then later in the second month of their second year back in the land, they made a beginning on the temple itself. They cleared the foundation and they had a little ceremony to mark the occasion. But then due to local opposition and harassment, the work came to a screeching halt. You can read all about that in Ezra chapter 4. And that, of course, brings us to Ezra chapter 5, which is where Haggai and Zechariah make their appearance in the story. For about 16 years, the temple project had been completely stalled. It had become too difficult. The local leaders, people we will come to know later in the Bible as Samaritans, did everything they could to intimidate the people and obstruct the project. And it was a time of unrest and upheaval in the wider region. And so perhaps it was difficult to get clarification as to the legitimacy of the work for whatever reasons, legitimate or otherwise, the project was put on hold. And God used the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to start it up again. Now, because Haggai connects everything he says and does to certain verifiable dates in Persian history, we're able to locate his life and ministry with unusual specificity. Based on the references he provides, it would appear that his entire ministry took place 
over just a little less than four months, beginning on August 29th, 520 BC, and ending on December 18th, 520 BC. In those four months, he lit a fire under the people of God, such that the work was resumed and the temple was completed and dedicated in 516 BC. So this is a story that takes place, as I said, at the very end of the first wave of return. If we were arranging this material chronologically in our Bibles, then we would tuck these two chapters in the book of Haggai right after verse 2 of Ezra chapter 5. Now, in terms of the prophet Haggai himself, we don't know as much about him as we would like. He was obviously very well known within the exilic community because when he is mentioned in Ezra, it isn't even necessary to mention the name of his father or his family line. He is just Haggai the prophet. Obviously, they knew who he was and they recognized his credentials as a prophet. But 2,500 years or so later, obviously, we would like to know a little bit more than we do. We know that he was a prophet. We know that he was part of the exilic community. We think he might have been a priest. He was probably born on a feast day, given that his name literally means my feast. And he was probably a very old man when he uttered the oracles that were later arranged into the book of Haggai. That assumption is based on the fact that he seems to have had firsthand recollections of the original temple. So if he was 15 years old in 586 B.C., then he was born in 601 BC, which means that he was 81 years old in August of 520 BC. That may explain why there is no further mention of him after December of 520 BC. He may have said these things and then died shortly thereafter. By the way, as a side note, it is interesting to just observe how many prophets and preachers in the Bible spent most of their lives being prepared by God for a relatively short period of influence and ministry. It takes a lot of life to shape and refine a godly leader. But that's a story for another day. Here in the book of Haggai, the focus is laser sharp. The prophet's job is to remind people of the central importance of the presence and blessing of Almighty God. It is not something you seek once you have everything else in your life nailed down. It is the thing you need to seek first and most of all. Because with God, you can do anything. But without God, you're just spinning your wheels. First things first. That is the message and major theme. You could probably say that is the message and only theme in the book of Haggai. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, as I mentioned, Haggai very helpfully connects every event in his own prophetic career to a verifiable date in Persian history. That's absolutely marvelous. That's incredibly helpful if, of course, you know the basics of Persian history. So let me just take a minute here to bring you up to speed. King Cyrus, whom we discussed briefly just a moment ago, died in 530 BC, fighting barbarian tribes to the northeast of Persia. He was succeeded by his son Cambyses. Cambyses goes off to war in Egypt, but then a guy claiming to be Cambyses' dead brother Smyrdas 
rises up in rebellion, and according to some reports, Cambyses goes mad when he hears that and commits suicide. Others say that he died by accident. Some even say that he was assassinated. We don't really know for sure. What we do know is that Darius, who was an officer in Cambyses' army, leads the troops back to Persia, where he defeats Pseudo-Smyrtus and becomes the undisputed ruler of the entire Persian Empire. It takes him about two years to consolidate his position. But by around 520 BC, he is firmly established and beginning to set things back in order. It is in this context of chaos, unrest, and upheaval that our story takes place. We're able to locate this story today with even greater precision than would have been possible a generation ago. Eugene Merrill says here, Thanks to the recovery of ancient chronological and astronomical data, it is possible to assign precise dates to events in post-exilic Judah. The sixth month, Elul, corresponds to August-September in modern calendars, and the first day of the month in the year 520 was August 29th. Closed quote. So as I mentioned, the entire ministry of the prophet Haggai takes place over a period of four months, 16 weeks, beginning on August 29th, 520 BC, and ending on December 18th, 520. As a result of his encouragement, along with that of his colleague Zechariah, the people re-engaged with the work of rebuilding the temple, so much so that the local Persian officials were concerned that they might be constructing a fortress. So as we read about in Ezra chapter 5, they wrote back to head office for verification, which they subsequently received from Darius, along with instructions to invest in the work and to ensure its completion. So basically, Haggai encourages the people at their absolute lowest. And as a result, they restart the work in faith and obedience. And then shortly thereafter, all the opposition disappears. And in fact, they receive imperial encouragement, legitimization, and significant investment. So obviously, this is a significant turning point in the story. Now we get into the heart of the message itself, delivered specifically to Zerubbabel and Joshua, beginning at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, we'll stop here just because I want you to see in your Bible that this is the end of the first oracle. We presume that it's just a summary here of a much longer statement that the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had made to the leaders of the post-exilic community. In verse 3, we have the introduction of a second oracle. This one delivered directly to the people. There are four oracles in total in this book. Two at the beginning and then two at the end. So I just wanted you to notice the basic structure here. The first oracle is directed at the leaders. It says explicitly, to Zerubbabel and Joshua the prophet. And then it says this, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So again, the story here is that after making a start on the temple project in 537 and 536 BC, they began to run into a great deal of harassment and interference from local leaders. Now, not Persian leaders, local leaders, tribal leaders, social leaders, mostly drawn from the people we will come to know later in the Bible as the Samaritans. Eventually, the people decided it was just too difficult to proceed with the project. Supplies were being stolen, deliveries were being intercepted, costs were running high, and then, of course, the empire itself and the wider world had fallen into turmoil, so now is probably not the time to run afoul of nervous Persian governors. 
No, 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 no. The entire situation suggests that an extended pause on this project would be the better part of prudence. That's what you've decided, the prophet says. You've decided that now is not the time to rebuild the temple. But you are wrong. What you've failed to calculate is the incredible benefit of the presence and pleasure of the Lord. If the Lord is with you, if the Lord is pleased with you, then the displeasure of the Samaritans and the potential displeasure of the Persians is hardly worth considering. That is the argument being put forward by the prophet Haggai. He turns his attention to the people in general in verses 3 and following. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your full. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now, notice the you yourselves in verse 4. The pronoun you is repeated in the Hebrew. So if you're visualizing this, imagine that Haggai has delivered his first oracle to Zerubbabel and Joshua, perhaps on the steps of the unfinished temple. He speaks to them, and then he whirls around, and he points his long, bony finger at the people gathered around him on the stairs, and he says, You, you yourselves, is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, of course, I don't know if it happened exactly like that, but that's the general idea. The people have abandoned the project. That was their entire reason for coming here in the first place. All the energy, all the resources, all the time they were supposed to be pouring into the temple, they were instead pouring into their own houses and estates. That's what he says. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Paneled houses. Paneled houses are for rich people, for nobles, aristocrats, and kings. Solomon built his house exactly like that. 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 7 says, And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. And of course, the temple was built like that because the temple was conceived of as a sort of palace for God, the ultimate king of Israel. But regular people built their houses with stone. The outside was stone and the inside was stone. But apparently, since they couldn't invest all of this expensive paneling in the house of the Lord, they put it in their own houses. They took money and resources that were supposed to go to God, and instead, they gave them to themselves. That's what's going on here. And so the prophet says, think about that. How do you think that God looks at that? And, and, and do you think there might be a connection to what you're doing and how you are feeling? You eat, but you never feel full. You work, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never feel happy. It, it feels like there's something missing. Because there is. God is missing. That's the thrust of his message. J. Alec Montier says here, What the prophet exposes here is not hardship, but non-fulfillment. They had seed to sow, food to eat, wine to drink, clothes to wear, gainful employment. 
but no true satisfaction, closed quote. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. If you want to be happy, if you want to be truly satisfied, then you have to start with God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew 6.33. That's the New Testament version of this principle. If you neglect the Lord and the worship of the Lord and the presence of the Lord so as to build your businesses or your homes, you will never be satisfied. It will feel like there is a giant hole in your heart. That's exactly what the prophet is saying to these people. In, in verse 6, he says, he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. It's never enough. It never satisfies because unless the Lord is your foundation, nothing holds, nothing fits, nothing fills. The temple in the Old Testament was the outward form of the presence of the Lord among his people. And thus, to neglect that project was to express indifference towards the presence and the favor of the Lord. And so everything else they pursued, God opposed. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors." So Haggai appears to believe that there is a direct connection between the building economic crisis and their willful neglect of the temple. He says, you expected to prosper. You expected growth and increase, but it hasn't come to pass. You worked hard in your fields, but you only harvested enough to keep you from starving. What's going on? Haggai says, it's because you've neglected your mission and calling. You were supposed to build the temple until that day, until you do. God won't bless you. Are you hearing that? Haggai draws a straight line between their economic and financial hardships and the poor state of their relationship with God. Why would he do that? Where is he getting that? Well, he's probably getting that from the works of earlier prophets like Amos. Amos, who prophesied about 350 years before Haggai, records God saying to Israel, I gave you cleanness of teeth. That is, you had nothing to eat to get your teeth dirty in the first place. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. 
I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So according to Amos, God put Israel on bread and water, basically starvation rations, so that they would realize that without him, they are nothing. But they didn't get the message. So he ruined their harvest, but they still didn't get the message. So he sent them a plague, and yet they did not return to him. Are you going to be as stupid as those people, Haggai asks, or are you going to go back to work? The answer comes to us in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. As soon as the people resolve to return to work on the project, everything changes. All of a sudden, it isn't the Lord of hosts speaking to them. It is the Lord their God. Lord of hosts means God of armies. The, the Lord their God means Father God. It literally means covenant God, the God they are in relationship with. That's intentional. God withholds blessing and favor when people are disobeying. He does not enable sin and stupid. But as soon as a turn is made towards obedience and fealty, he rushes in to reassure and encourage, just like a good parent. I'm not going to give my young adult children money and assistance to pursue stupid or sinful things, but I will invest heavily in every step and every initiative towards righteousness and responsibility. As soon as they turn, God says, I am with you. As James, the brother of the Lord, says in the New Testament, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, James 4, 8. That's true. No matter what part of the Bible you happen to be reading, thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. 
There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 